you have your Bible, please open to Mark chapter 12. Mark chapter 12. If you didn't bring a Bible, I invite you to look in the back of the pew in front of you. There are some Bibles there that we would love for you to use. Just purchased just recently. So please feel free to take one of those. Mark chapter 12. We'll be looking this morning at the first 12 verses. Once you've found that, I invite you to stand for the reading of God's Word. And he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a wall around it and dug a vat under the wine press and built a tower and rented it out to vine growers and went on a journey. And at the harvest time, he sent a slave to the vine growers in order to receive some of the fruit of the vineyard from the vine growers. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And again he sent them another slave, and they wounded him in the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and that one they killed, and so with many others, beating some and killing others. He had one more, a beloved son. He sent him last of all to them, saying, They will respect my son. But those vine growers said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the vine growers and will give the vineyard to others. Have you not even read the scripture? The stone which the builders rejected, this has become the chief cornerstone. This came about from the Lord, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to seize him, and yet they feared the crowd, for they understood that he spoke the parable against them. So they left him and went away. Let's pray. Father, we know that contained in these verses we have read that you have a message for us. We pray that you would speak it clearly and give us ears to hear it and receive it and respond to it in the way that you would desire. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. We were made to worship. Another way to say it might be to say we were made, we were created to glorify God. One of the most fundamental truths of Christianity is that God created people to worship and glorify Him. That's the reason God made humanity to begin with. The Westminster Confession of Faith, the first question asks, what is the chief end of man? What is the chief reason for man's existence? The answer, to glorify and enjoy God forever. We're made to worship Him. We're made for His glory. Today you're going to hear me use this phrase a lot. I'm going to talk about bearing fruit for God's glory. And I want to take just 
a minute to explain to you what do I mean when I talk about bearing fruit for God's glory. This is a parable about a vineyard. Obviously, the purpose of a vineyard is to produce fruit. So when we think about bearing fruit, producing fruit for God's glory, what do we mean? Well, what we mean is living lives that honor God. Living lives that praise God. Living lives that reflect how amazing and wonderful and good and holy God is. Think of it this way. To bear fruit for God's glory means essentially to live all of life in such a way that everything you do is an act of worship. We come together here for the purpose of offering God worship. The songs we sing, the prayers we pray, the studying of the Scripture, the goal in all of it is to offer Him worship and help us to be better worshipers. Help us to glorify God more in our lives. The reason we gather in small groups like Sunday school, it all goes back to worship. The reason we do all of it is to create us to be a, a people who worship God more in the way He deserves. Who bring Him more glory with, my life, with our lives. You following me? It all ultimately comes back to this idea of worshiping God or offering Him the glory that He is due. So when we talk about bearing fruit for God's glory, that means that our lives worship Him. The way we talk reflects His holiness. The way we work reflects His holiness. The way we think reflects His holiness. What we do when we gather reflects His holiness. In other words, we want to be a reflection of God in everything we do and everything we say. We want our lives to worship Him. We want our very lives to be a source of worship. And what I want to say to you is Jesus came to make that possible. Jesus came to make it possible for us as His people to bear fruit for God's glory, to live lives that are a source of worship to God. What these verses we read this morning teach us is this. God sent His Son to replace a fruitless religious system so that God's people could finally bear fruit for His glory. I want to say that again. This text teaches us that God sent His Son to replace a fruitless religious system so that His people could finally be able to bear fruit for His glory. We're looking at these first 12 verses in Mark chapter 12. If you were with us last week, you saw we looked at verses 27 to 23 of Mark chapter 11. And in those verses, the Jewish religious leaders challenged Jesus' authority. He goes into the temple and he runs out all the money changers and those buying and selling. He said, this is supposed to be a house of prayer, a place of worship. You've turned it into a flea market like a robber's den. 
And they want to know, by what authority do you do this? They challenge his authority. Now, in this parable Jesus tells, this story that he tells, the vine growers in this parable are essentially doing the same thing. They are challenging the authority of the owner of the vineyard, who is God. They are challenging the authority of the owner's messengers that he sent, who would represent the prophets. And they're even challenging the authority of the owner's son, Jesus. So what's happening in this parable is, Jesus is giving a parable to describe the rebellion of the religious leaders against God and His authority. And He's describing what's going to happen to them as a result. Now, there are four observations I want to make from these verses. And my prayer is that if we look at these verses, we'll come to understand and be able to apply the message God's trying to communicate to us today. Here's the first observation I want to show you. God's purpose. God's purpose. Verse 1. Jesus began to speak to these Jewish religious leaders. A man planted a vineyard, put a wall around it, dug a vat under the wine press, and built a tower. This image comes from Isaiah chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. Let me read you what that says. Let me sing now for my well-beloved, a song of my beloved concerning his vineyard. My well-beloved had a vineyard on a fertile hill. He dug it all around, removed its stones, planted it with the choicest vine. He built a tower in the middle of it and also hewed out a wine vat in it. He hoped for it to produce good grapes. So Jesus takes this image of a vineyard owner. A man has a piece of land. He prepares the ground. He plants a a vine in the ground, the choicest, best vine, and he's planting a vineyard to grow grapes. Notice what it says. He plants the vineyard. He puts a wall around it. This would be like a fence around the vineyard. It would mark it off, mark it off as belonging to someone, as land that was owned. It would also be to protect it like from varmints and things that might come in and attack the grapes. He dug a vat under the wine press. This may seem kind of disgusting, but the way they got the juice from the grapes is they put them in a big container and they walked in it with their feet. They, they, you've heard about treading the wine press. That's what that means. Well, they would dig a pit under it to catch the, the juice. It's called the wine vat. So this is what the owner does. He plants the vine. He, he builds a wine uh, press and he digs a vat under it to catch the juice and then he builds a tower. The tower is tall. Someone will be in the tower to watch for uh, approaching enemies or any danger to the vineyard. So he, he prepares this vineyard and then it says he rents it out to vine growers. We would know those as tenant farmers. Okay, These are people the owner is someone who doesn't live where the vineyard is. He probably lives away somewhere, but he owns this property. He owns this vineyard, and he leases it to tenant farmers. They farm the land. In return, he receives a set portion of the crop. That's his fee. 
A portion of the crop goes to him as the owner of the vineyard. Now, I need to make sure you understand in this parable, who is this representing? The vineyard owner is God. God is the one who is planting the vineyard. The vineyard is Israel, God's people, Israel. And the vine growers or these tenant farmers is Israel's leadership. At the time Jesus told this parable, it would be what's called the Sanhedrin Council. The Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes, Israel's religious leadership. They are the tenant farmers. Now, I want you to think about something. Why do you plant a vineyard? There's only one reason to plant a vineyard. It's to grow a crop. To produce fruit. That's the only reason a vineyard exists. Why did God raise up the people Israel? The same way. In the Old Testament, he relates them to the vine. Israel is his vine. He planted them. He raised up this nation to produce fruit for his glory. To glorify him. To be a worshiping people. God delivered Israel from slavery in Egypt. You remember? By all these miraculous signs and wonders. He miraculously met every need they had in the wilderness. He brought forth water from the rock. He gave them the manna from heaven. He gave them the law of Moses. He gave them the tabernacle. He gave them the priesthood. He brought them into their own abundant land and established them as an independent nation. Why did he do all of that? He's like this vineyard owner who's doing everything to prepare this vineyard. Well, God did the same thing with Israel. And he did it all so that they would be a people who brought him glory. So that they would be a people who, when you look at the nation and you look at the people and you look at the way they functioned and the way that they lived, it honored God. It made God, it showed God for the wonderful, amazing, good God that He is. Their purity reflected God's purity. Their honesty reflected God's truthfulness. That's why God did this. Here's a verse for you Isaiah 43, 6 and 7. I will say to the north, give them up, and to the south, do not hold them back. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I have created for my glory. God said, bring my sons and daughters to me. I created them for my glory. Listen, when Jesus describes this vineyard, He's describing God as having established the nation of Israel as a people who would produce fruit for His glory. As a people who would be a worshiping people. Now, you and I, as a church, have been planted here in this place to bear fruit for God's glory. We have been planted here to be a worshiping people. Before we are anything else, 
We are to be a people who exist to offer God the worship He deserves in our individual lives and in our corporate activity as a body. We exist for the glory of God. Are you with me? It's so important that you get this in your mind. We exist to worship. I need to move on. 1 Corinthians 10.31. Here's a great verse for you to remember. This is why the Apostle Paul said, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. Our mission is to be a worshiping people, to bring God glory in the place He has planted us. That's God's purpose. The next thing I want you to see is God's patience. God raised up the nation of Israel for His own glory to be a worshiping people. And God was incredibly patient with His people as they continuously failed to bear fruit for His glory. I want to read you Isaiah 51, 1 and 2 again. And I want to read a verse. I left off the last part of that verse. Let me sing now for my well-beloved the song of my beloved concerning his vineyard. My well-beloved had a vineyard on a fertile hill. He dug it all around, removed its stones, and planted it with the choicest vine. He built a tower in the middle of it. He also hewed out a wine vat in it. He hoped for it to produce good grapes, but it produced only worthless ones. God is saying through the prophet Isaiah, I raised up the nation of Israel like a vine. I planted them. I did everything I could so that they could produce fruit for my glory. But in the end, the only thing they produced was worthless. Now what, what Jesus is pointing to specifically, when you get to verse, uh, when you get to verse 2 through 5, Jesus is pointing to the failure of Israel's leadership. You see, Israel's religious leadership, their purpose was to lead the people of God to bear fruit for His glory. To lead them to be a worshiping people as God planned for them to be. But when, when Jesus tells this parable, I want you to look what happens. In verse 2, the vineyard's been planted. The tenant farmers are working the land. Well, the time comes for harvest. So, the owner of the vineyard, God, sends his messenger, one of the prophets, to receive fruit from the vineyard. Verse 3 says, They took this, this servant, this slave, and beat him and sent him away without anything. No words. God didn't get the fruit he was expecting. Verse 4, another slave is sent. They wound this one. Treat him shamefully. Verse 5, he sends another slave. They kill that one and many others. The owner of the vineyard keeps sending someone to receive the portion of the fruit that he is due legally. Well, the, those working the ground, the tenant farmers, refuse to give the owner of the fruit he is due. Now I want you to think about this. Over and over and over, God sent prophets to the nation of Israel 
specifically to the leaders of the people, to tell them what God's Word said in order to turn them away from their sin, to turn them back to the way of God, to help them be a fruitful people. In other words, you know if you know the story of the Bible that over and over and over Israel turned and fell into sin. Their leaders often led them into sin. Over and over God sent the prophets and said, you fall into sin. This is the Word of God. Turn back from your sin. Why did God keep sending prophets? Because He wants the people to become this worshiping people, this people who glorify Him. So when they would turn from the way, when they would fail to bear fruit, He would send one of His prophets to turn them back. God was doing all of this so that He could have a people who bear fruit for His glory. The problem is, rather than lead the people to hear the Word of God from the prophet, Israel's leadership rejected the prophets and the Word of God that came from the prophets. Oh, and it was many, many prophets, not just two or three. Many prophets over the centuries came, brought the Word of God to try to turn Israel back to a fruitful way. Some of those prophets were rejected, treated, beaten, prisoned. Some of them were killed. Tradition says Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Micah, and Amos were all killed. Isaiah was sawn in two. And listen, this went on for centuries. Over and over and over, God sends the men of God to the nation of Israel to turn them away from their sin, to lead them to be the fruitful people they're supposed to be. But Israel's corrupt leadership refuses to hear. Prophets like Jeremiah, do you remember in Jeremiah chapter 38, it tells the story how God sent Jeremiah to the king, to the leadership with a word from God for the good of the people. They refused to hear him and they threw him into an old cistern that had no water in it, into an empty well. And it says he just sunk in the mud and they left him there. It's the kind of thing they did over and over. Listen, if we, as we read this story of this vineyard owner, it, the story seems inconceivable that he would keep sending servant after servant after servant when they kept mistreating them and killing them. What Jesus is trying to convey to these religious leaders is this. God has been incredibly patient with you. As over and over and over He has sent prophets to you so that you would lead the people of God to be a worshiping people. Over and over He has sent the prophets to you that the people might bear fruit for His glory. And over and over and over you have failed to lead the people to bear fruit, the fruit of worship that God deserved. Jesus is trying to display the patience of God, not just with Israel, but particularly with the Israelite leadership who has failed to lead the people to produce fruit. Not only does that illustrate God's patience, it illustrates the guilt of Israel's leaders how absolutely guilty they are. 
because what God put them in place to do was to lead his people to be a worshiping people. He had done everything he could do. He brought them out of the land. He made them a free nation. He provided for all of their needs. He defeated all their enemies. He set up a system by which they could function for his glory and they failed over and over and over. God was incredibly patient. Now I want you to notice God's plan. The third thing I want us to see in this is God's plan. And this is really the heart of the text from verses 6 to 11. When we look at this plan, we'll see that God's plan involved three things. First, God's plan involved sending His Son to die at the hands of Israel's corrupt leadership. Second, it involved raising His Son from the dead as Lord. Third, it involved making Him the very center of a new religious system that would finally enable God's people to bear fruit for His glory. So let's notice this first thing. God's plan was sending His Son to die at the hands of Israel's corrupt leadership. Verse 6. The vineyard owner had one more. He'd sent all of his slaves. He had one more he could send, a beloved son. He sent him last of all, saying, They will respect my son. But those vine growers said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him. The inheritance will be ours. They took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. Jesus is describing to these religious leaders what they are going to do to him within a matter of days. Now, the son that is sent by the vineyard owner, the father, he represents not only the, the father's legal claim, right? The son is the heir of the vineyard. So he represents the legal, the legal claim of the father. This word send has the, sen the sense of a divine commission. Like the apostles were sent by divine authority. So the son, Jesus, has come with God's divine authority as God's legal representative, the heir to the kingdom. And I want you to notice the son differs from the slave. God has been sending slaves who were the prophets. I want you to notice how the son's different from the slaves. Several ways he's unique. First of all, the slaves are hirelings. Jesus isn't a hireling. He's an heir. They are forerunners. They came before. Jesus is the final and last one sent by the father. And above all, he is beloved. He is called the beloved son. So the vineyard owner has sent all his slaves. They're mistreated and killed even up to John the Baptist. Now he sends his son. And the tenant farmers implement their plan. They kill him in the vineyard. They throw him out without giving a proper burial. That would represent contempt. It, it was it was a disgrace to be thrown out and not be buried. What this represents is the contempt that these religious leaders had for Jesus and for God. Absolute contempt. They kill the son, treat him with contempt. Now, I want you to keep in mind this is a parable. 
which means it's a story intended to illustrate something. In the parable, the vineyard owner doesn't know that these tenant farmers are going to kill his son. But when God sent his son, did God know they were going to kill his son? Yeah, he knew. Matter of fact, the reason he sent his son was to die at the hands of these corrupt religious leaders. God sent him knowing they would reject him. The parable is simply trying to give us this picture. It is predicting, Jesus is telling this story to these religious leaders, predicting the death of his son at their hands. Jesus is saying, you are going to take me, the very son sent from the father, and you're going to treat me with contempt and kill me, the one who is the heir of the kingdom. But that's not all this, this parable pictures. It doesn't just picture sending his son to die. It pictures God raising him from the dead as Lord. When you get to verses 9 through 11, you notice that after the son is killed, that's the end of the parable. It, the parable doesn't say anything about the son being raised from the dead, vindicated, made supreme Lord and Master. Well, it's implied in verses 9 through 11. The resurrection isn't mentioned specifically, but it is implied. What will the owner of the vineyard do? Verse 9, he will come and destroy the vine growers. He will give the vineyard to others. Have you not even read this scripture? The stone which the builders rejected, this has become the chief cornerstone. This came about from the Lord. It's marvelous in our eyes. In other words, the one that these religious leaderships have rejected and killed, he's going to be the one who is set up as the foundation of a whole new religious system. How could that happen? Well, it can only happen if God raises him from the dead. So he implies in what he says that the death of the son is not the end of the son. Are you with me? That he's going to come back from the dead. So in this parable, we see what God's plan is. His plan is to send his son to die at the hands of these corrupt leaders and then to raise him from the dead. And finally, the point of these three verses, verses 9 through 11, is that God's plan is to make Jesus the center of a new religious system that will finally enable God's people to bear fruit for his glory. Look at verse 9. What will the owner of the vineyard do? What is God going to do with these ones who have killed his son? He will come and destroy the vine growers and will give the, vine, the, the vineyard to others. The word destroy is not the same word kill. You might expect it to say God's going to kill them. That's what the vineyard owners would do. He would have them executed. But here the word is destroy. What it means, the penalty they're going to suffer is not just the penalty for murder. But God is going to destroy everything that these corrupt leaders stand for. Them, along with their entire corrupt religious system, is going to be demolished, done away with, and will be replaced. It will be removed and replaced. He will give the vineyard to others. Christ will be the, new, the heir of the vineyard, the people of God. Who are the new tenants? Who are the new vine goers? Well, probably the apostles. They are the ones who Jesus established as the foundation for the church. 
to preach and teach the message of Jesus and establish the New Testament church. In other words, God is replacing this old corrupt regime with a whole new religious system that has Christ at the foundation of it. And that's where verses 10 and 11 come in. He quotes from Isaiah, excuse me, from Psalm 118, verses 22 and 23. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. The cornerstone is the first stone laid in a building, in the temple, for instance. And this stone is important, not just because every other stone is built onto it, but because the first stone has to be perfectly square because it sets the line of direction for both walls. You with me? If the first stone is crooked, then the whole building will be out of square. It's the foundation stone. This first stone has to be perfectly square on all sides and laid perfectly square with the foundation. So it's the most important stone. So what he's saying is the stone which the builders didn't want is becoming the most important stone in the whole building. This is the picture. The, the one that the religious leaders have rejected and killed he is becoming the very foundation of the whole religious system. He's taking the place of the temple. A new temple will be built based on Christ. A whole new way of worship. A whole new religious system founded on Jesus. And you see in verse 11, this is the very work of God. This is what I want you to see. The rejected son becomes, after he dies, the supreme heir of the vineyard. The vineyard is restored to God's ownership. So Jesus dies, is raised, and becomes the foundation of a restored people of God. Now, what's God's purpose in doing all of that? Why did God replace the old vineyard owners, the old tenant farmers? Why did God get rid of them and replace them? They wouldn't give the owner the fruit he was due. So he brought judgment upon them and replaced them. Israel's corrupt leadership and their whole corrupt religious system failed to produce fruit for his glory. They failed to be the worshiping people he created them for. So God replaced them with the church with Christ as its foundation. Why? So that through Jesus, we could finally bear fruit for the glory of God. Only through Jesus are we finally able to be the worshiping people that we're supposed to be. Only through Jesus can we finally live the lives that bring honor and glory to God the way we are supposed to. Ephesians 2, 19 and 20. So then you are no longer strangers and sojourners, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are God's household, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Peter, excuse me, Paul is telling these non-Jewish, these Gentile believers, you are now part of the true temple, the true house of God, the true people of God. 
Jesus as the cornerstone. I need you to see this. Israel failed to bear fruit for God's glory. The Israelite Jewish leaders whose very job was to lead the people to bear fruit for God's glory, they failed. The whole system became corrupt. So God replaced it. Sent His Son to die for our sin. Rose Him from the dead, showing Him as Lord. Established Him as the foundation of a whole new way of worship. So that we can finally be a church, be a people who bear fruit for God's glory. I need to hurry. Here's the fourth observation I want to make. God's providence. Verse 12. They, these religious leaders who Jesus was condemning in His parable, they were seeking to seize Him. Arrest for the purpose of putting Him to death. That's what they wanted to do. I want you to think about something. Talk about God's providence. God is so orchestrating events. He's working behind the scenes, bringing things to pass so that when these leaders respond to Jesus' parable, think about this, their response to Jesus' parable is to seek to seize Him. What are they doing? They're actually bringing about its fulfillment. What did Jesus just say? He said, you're going to seize me and you're going to kill me. So when the parable is over, what's the first thing they want to do? What are they doing? They're fulfilling the prophecy that Jesus just gave them. They're doing the very thing He said they were going to do. Now notice it says they feared the crowd. They knew they couldn't get Jesus under these circumstances. The crowd was baffled by Jesus. So it says in verse 12, they left Him and went away. Why is this important? Well, first of all, the parable further solidifies that the intentions of these corrupt leaders is to kill Jesus. But the circumstances would not allow them to do it at the moment. They couldn't grab Jesus just yet. Why not? Why couldn't they grab Jesus just yet? Why couldn't Jesus die yet? It's Wednesday. When does Jesus have to die? Friday. Anybody know why? It's Passover. The Passover lamb dies on Passover. Jesus came to be the Passover lamb. Listen, I want you to think about what's going on in verse 12. It says they wanted to seize him. They wanted to kill him, which is exactly what God said they would do. But they couldn't do it yet. They wouldn't be able to do it till Friday. What is God doing? He's orchestrating events so that His plan will be carried out perfectly. You with me? Jesus tells this parable. And what, the, what these religious leaders do in their actions, they're actually, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. They are bringing about the very thing God said would happen.
Listen. This parable is a testimony to the sure purposes of God. And for Mark's first readers, they were Christians in Rome under the persecution of Nero. This would have been a great encouragement to them that God was working behind the scenes and His vineyard would not be destroyed. It, 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 we can have this same sort of fear in our day when the church is caught in compromise and confusion and seems to be in decline. But the parable of the vineyard is permeated with the sense of God's indomitable providence. In other words, God's purposes can't be thwarted. Are you with me? Those who seem to act to try to destroy God's purpose, all they do is fulfill God's purpose. When the religious leaders went after Jesus to kill Him, all they did in killing Him was fulfill God's plan. When those who oppose God's people and God's church try to destroy the church, all they will do is fulfill God's plan. Uh, listen. I, I want to go back to where I started. This is the point of this whole text. God sent His Son to replace a fruitless religious system so that His people could finally bear fruit for His glory. For you and I, that means Jesus came and died and rose as Lord, ascended to the right hand of God, has planted us here as His church for one reason, that we might bear fruit for His glory. To be a worshiping people. To be a worshiping people. And what we do here, corporately, and in what we do individually. Now I want to leave you with this question. Do you live your life in such a way that you can say, my life, my very life is an act of worship. My very life, the way I think and speak and act, brings glory to God. It makes Him look good. Now you